You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us so well. Uh, Good to see you today. Hope that you're looking forward to a great week of uh, Thanksgiving. Hard to believe it's already here. Uh, The year seems to be, there's days it seems like it's just creeping by, uh, especially when it comes to getting in a new building. Uh, other times it feels like it's, it's uh, flying past us. Uh, I was mindful uh, this week that it was 10 years ago, right around this time, that I got a Facebook message from a member of the search committee, um, and it simply said, would you be open to a 15-minute phone conversation? That 15-minute phone conversation turned to an hour-and-a-half phone conversation, um, and I'll just tell you, um, some of you know who that, uh, that person was. I won't mention their name, but um, uh, they, they were charged with just reaching out to me, making that initial contact. And uh, I would like to tell you that they just told me all the great stuff about this church. And they, and, and they did. That person uh, did have a lot of great things to say. But they also gave me a very realistic view uh, of, uh, of where things were and what the future looked like, uh, perhaps, and all of those things. And so it's just amazing to think of how God worked in all the details and orchestrated that we would be here, and now you've endured me as your pastor for almost 10 years. Um, but uh, oh, I, somebody said amen. I thought they meant like we've endured you for 10. They're amening that. That's one of our best deacons right up here on the front row who said that. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, no, it's really, I, I thank God for you every day and pray for you daily, and I'm just so uh, really, really grateful uh, for the privilege of serving here. Um, these are exciting days for our church. If you missed our members meeting last Sunday evening, we approved like 13 new families and individuals uh, for membership uh, here as a part of the First Baptist family. We adopted the largest budget in this church's history, uh, north of a million dollars. And so uh, I say that again to remind you of how important your giving is and uh, to be faithful and sacrificial and consistent in your giving. And, and you've done that. Uh, if you look at uh, the financial uh, pa- uh, picture from uh, even this year leading up to year end here. God has been so very good to provide. Uh, we're in single digits now, y'all. Nine Sundays until January the 21st when we plan to be in our new building. Uh, and so look forward to that. Also know uh, that with a new year and a new home, there will be a new schedule. Okay? I know all of you uh, are eager to embrace change, right? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get you geared up for this, okay? And we're going to try it before we actually move. So just know Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. That day is the first day, at least right now, that we're planning to do the new schedule. And that's really not new for us. We've done this one other time before. Uh, But we're going to need to do this moving into the new building so that we can utilize rooms two times. So the early service will move to 9.30. 9.30 and 11. So for most of you who normally come to this service... There will be very little change, okay? So you can breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, But uh, the early service will move to 9.30, and there will be community groups going on during both morning worship services and perhaps even community groups in the hour before at 8 o'clock. So if you are an early riser uh, and you like to beat uh, whoever to the restaurant on Sunday afternoon, you might consider coming to an 8 o'clock community group, the early service at 9.30, And uh, you would be well on your way by 1045, unless God convicted you to serve somewhere 
See what I'm doing here this morning? I am setting y'all up really good, okay? Um, God convicted you to serve during that 11 o'clock hour, which would be amazing. Uh, I, I would just say this. We, we, we need you, okay? Uh, if, everybody just smile right quick. Okay, smile at me. Okay. There's a few of you that look like your pet lizard died this morning. Um, but most of you look well qualified to serve on the First Impressions team, Okay. Uh, and Keegan would say amen to that. And so if he reaches out to you over these next few weeks to enlist your help on first impressions, will you at least pray about it, okay? Pray about it because all it takes is a warm smile and a, a word of welcome and, and put one of those first things in their hands many times. Maybe given some direction uh, as to where somebody needs to go, but we are going to need more people uh, to serve in some of those areas. So these are great days, great, great days, and so glad to be a part of it. Well, we're in John chapter 10 this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 30 in our continuing study through John's gospel. The plan is for us to wrap up John chapter 10 next week, and then the first Sunday in December will kick off the Advent season for us, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, all of that is coming during this season. Uh, We do plan to have Advent guides for uh, individuals and families, and uh, we will do all that. So we'll pause for an Advent sermon series, a Christmas series. And then later we'll return to to John's gospel. But this morning, we're in verses 11 through 30. Now last week, uh, we talked about Jesus primarily as the door. Uh, This week, we're focusing on Jesus as the good shepherd. Uh, And last week, someone asked me uh, after the service if, if I felt like maybe Jesus was just mixing his metaphors here in John chapter 10, referring to himself as both the good shepherd and the door. And I, I don't believe that's the case. Uh, because I don't believe Jesus would commit a grammatical error like that. Um, a, a mixed metaphor occurs when someone mixes together two different metaphors in a single expression. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. We could stand here and talk until the cows turn blue. Okay, that's a mixed metaphor. Uh, he was watching me like I was a hawk. That's a mixed metaphor. I, I wouldn't eat that with a 10-foot pole. That's a mixed metaphor. When the going gets tough, the early bird gets the worm. All right. If you were napping right there, welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the service this morning. We're glad you're with us now. Uh, My heart just skipped a beat on that one. I got to tell you, I was like, wow. Okay, let's pull this back together if we could. Um, Far from a mixed metaphor, okay, Jesus is simply using two different metaphors. Are we going to do that in the new building, by the way? Are we going to have that? That's a a cool feature uh, to... People awake. Um, <laughs> what I believe he's really doing here is using one metaphor. And if we understand, like we talked about last week, the shepherd of the field many times would literally serve as the door of the sheepfold. Uh, and so it, it makes perfectly good sense then that Jesus would be described here as the door and the shepherd uh, to convey two distinct different uh, aspects. Now, here's the thing we need to understand. And I want to pause for just a moment to say this. The truth is that no single metaphor or word picture is sufficient to fully capture all that Jesus is and all that he does for us. It would be like someone telling me that I I need to describe everything that I love about my wife in one word. That would be really hard to do because there are so many things that I love about Christy Lovely. 
Uh, it would be so hard to just put that into one word. And so Jesus uses a variety of different metaphors, each one designed to convey some aspect of his person and his work to us. So he says, I am the bread of life. Clearly he's talking about he is our sustenance and our nourishment. He says, I am the light of the world, highlighting the illumination of brilliant truth and righteousness that Jesus uh, is both in himself and that he brings into the world. He says, I am the door. And as we talked about last week, he, that speaks of the access that Jesus gives us to both security and to sustenance and to safety and to provision. And so of all of Jesus's metaphors, I am the good shepherd is a favorite of many. We just love the picture, the idea of Jesus being a shepherd to his sheep because it carries uh, all these multiple meanings, an abundance of rich reassurance for us as believers who can often feel as dumb as sheep, right? Helpless, scared, vulnerable, harassed, all of the above. And with good reason then, Psalm 23 becomes a favorite, a most quoted, beloved of all the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It sounds so personal in nature. And it's there in Psalm 23 we learn how the good shepherd leads the sheep. He uh, protects the sheep, corrects the sheep. And so to that familiar Old Testament picture of the Lord as our shepherd, Jesus really here in John chapter 10 builds on that by giving us further depth. The good shepherd here in John chapter 10 lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. He knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. He keeps his sheep secure, and no one can snatch his sheep away from him. Wonderful pictures of the depth of his love and sacrifice and intimacy and security, all that come from the Lord Jesus himself as the good Shepherd. So let's look at it together, picking it up in verse number 11 here of John chapter 10, where he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember what had just happened in John chapter 9. Verse number 22 says, at the time of the feast of dedication, uh, at that time, uh, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple. And the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, think if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So I want you to notice, first of all, here very clearly, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. I suppose the most striking aspect of this image is the fact that Jesus identifies being the good shepherd with laying down his life for the sheep. We we just sang about that uh, in different ways. We talked about how we would benefit from his suffering, from his wounds, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And so at first, it seems like Jesus here might be talking about a willingness to defend the sheep from the wolves at all costs, unlike the the hired hand, which we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it soon becomes clear here that Jesus is talking much more specifically and intentionally. Think about this. It's one thing to say in an abstract that I would die for you. Okay, like I can stand here this morning in the comfort of this room, uh, in, in, in safety and feeling very secure, okay, and I can say to you, I would die for my family. I would date, lay down my life for my family. I can say that, and I suspect anyone else in this room would say something similar about your family. But it might be different if in this very moment they were all being held at gunpoint. Okay, you see how it becomes very different? Okay, so this is not some abstract thing that Jesus is talking about here when he says he lays down his life for the sheep. It's a very different matter to realize that the promised death is now required. The wolf has entered the sheepfold and is ravaging the flock, and only the death of the shepherd can secure the flock from this danger. The shepherd must battle and defeat the wolf, but the battle will, in fact, cost the shepherd his life. Now remember, the wolf was, was, was let into the sheepfold, we might say, by the first humans in the garden, who failed to reject his lies. Instead of obeying God and having dominion over the creation as they were charged to do, they submitted themselves to the serpent and they ate of that which was forbidden and gave the wolf devastating access to the sheep. And soon, sin would lead one of Adam's sons to commit the first murder in killing his own brother as the wolf continued to ravage the flock of God. Some of you who've just finished uh, the, our, our uh, fall semester Bible study, uh, in chapter after chapter, you've seen how the Old Testament unfolds the meta-narrative, the, the big picture story uh, of the devastation of the wolf on the people of God through idolatry and worldliness and corruption and injustice and unfaithfulness. And sometimes... A wise shepherd king like David or Hezekiah or young Josiah would arise and restore order. But such restoration and reform never seemed to last very long. And from the beginning, God knew exactly what the rescue of his sheep would cost. As he cursed the serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 where we find what's known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel itself. He said, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, alongside the story of the ravages of the wolf, God also continued to give his promises of deliverance and to give us pictures of what that deliverance would cost. We have it pictured in the Passover lamb, the day of atonement, the bloody sacrifices of the ceremonial law, the words of the prophets and the psalmists. You see these pictures all pointing to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. And now, here in John chapter 10, we see this long-awaited deliverer, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach has come into the world and he knew what the deliverance of God's people would cost him. His life. And as Isaiah chapter 53 had said over 700 years prior, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has what laid on him the iniquity of us all. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He does it in love for his father and in love for his sheep. Now Jesus makes it clear here that he lays down his life willingly. I think that's important. It's an act of loving obedience to God the Father and of sacrificial love for his sheep. So the text reads this way, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So the Father has made the promise of deliverance, has given the charge to God the Son to deliver, and the Son is here expressing his willingness to fulfill the promise to carry out the charge to deliver his people even at the cost of his own life. That he does so in love for his sheep is seen in the contrast that he draws next between himself as the good shepherd and the hired hand. So I want us to notice, secondly, Jesus is not a hired hand. See, the hired hand seems to be a different character from the thieves and the robbers that we talked about last week who would, who would in stealth, sneak over the wall of the sheepfold to steal sheep. No, thieves and robbers would actually steal from, abuse the flock. The hired hand doesn't appear to be so openly wicked, but is certainly not committed to the sheep with the sacrificial love of the good shepherd. In fact, he's described here as willing to do his job well enough as long as he is receiving something in return and the dangers are not too bad. It's like a lot of modern-day under-shepherds. In fact, in preparing for this morning's message, I found myself convicted as I thought about other fellow under-shepherds serving in difficult parts of the world. And I would say this, pastoral ministry anywhere has its challenges. And there are some very, very difficult days and, and, and confusing times, and it's not easy to lead in a chaotic world like the one in which we live. But I'm just going to tell you, there are some parts of the world where, where it, it, it's exponentially difficult. You take the Sudan, for example, where for a local pastor, the under-shepherd of a flock, for him to just get a copy of the Word of God or discipleship materials into the hands of some of the flock, they literally have to go behind enemy lines, risking their very lives to do so. 
It's convicting to me. I would like to think this morning that I would make such sacrifices, that I'd be willing to do the same thing. And that's easy to say right now, knowing that that's not the reality in which I minister. I think the same is true for a lot of Christians today. They're fine with being a fan of Jesus, fine with attending church as long as it's culturally acceptable, fine with doing the things that Christians do, making a stand or two here and there and those kinds of things as long as it's it's widely culturally acceptable. But when it really starts to cost me something, that's a different story. A lot of people want to talk about the benefits of Christianity. Few people want to talk about the cost of Christianity, the cost of discipleship. And God's word makes it clear there's a cost involved. So what we see of these hired hands is that that they run from danger. Jesus, as the good shepherd, he does not run from danger. The good shepherd does not run from danger like the hired hand. He doesn't flee when the wolf comes. Reminds us of David, who did not flee when the giant Goliath stood and mocked God's army, right? The reigning king of Israel, Saul, who we're told was head and shoulders taller than the rest of the Israelites, should have been Israel's champion, hid in his tent when Goliath threatened and challenged God's people and mocked the Lord. Saul was essentially there playing the part of the hired hand while David was playing the part of the good shepherd. And his words to Saul are pretty compelling. Listen to what he said. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. As if that wasn't enough, listen to this. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Now, I know there's some some brave guys in the room today, right? I've heard some pretty amazing hunting stories from a few of you. I haven't heard any of you talk about grabbing a lion by its beard, okay? I know I haven't. I haven't even thought about it. He went on to say, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And where was his strength? Was it in himself? No, he said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David was no hired hand. He wouldn't flee from danger, but he would trust in the Lord to deliver. Jesus does even better than David. For he allows himself to be swallowed by an even greater giant, death itself, so that he might destroy death from the inside. Then he makes it clear here he has all authority. All authority. Jesus is so different from the hired hand that he's been given all authority. This is part of the meaning of the word charge that we see here uh, in, in John's writing. Verse number 18, where Jesus says, I have authority to lay it down, have authority to take it up again. Then he says this, this charge I have received from my father. The word translated charge there means a commandment or a precept, which is why it reflects Jesus' obedience to God the Father. But it also means that which is prescribed to one by reason of his office. Okay, so even as it reflects the son's obedience to the father, it reflects the son's, uh, uh, the, the, the son's uh, uh, submission to the authority as the son of God. And so Jesus exceeds the hired hand in sacrificial love for the sheep, but he also exceeds the hired hand in rightful God-given authority to sacrifice himself to save his sheep. 
And as the good shepherd, he will willingly lay down his life for the sheep. But he has also been given authority to lay his life down in a way that will deliver the sheep from danger, in a way that the hired hand could never accomplish, even if he did not flee and was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. That's why John the Baptist declared when Jesus came upon the scene, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He's not a hired hand. I want you to notice this. Jesus knows and keeps his sheep. As the good shepherd, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep because he knows his sheep. This means more than the fact that Jesus simply recognizes or can identify those who are his sheep and those who are not. Okay? He loves the sheep intimately, deeply, personally, savingly. Simple words carry such profound depth. When Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So he knows all of his sheep. See, Jesus makes it clear here that he knows all of his sheep. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that? I think Jesus here is talking about the Gentiles who would come to believe in him. Uh, Even though they have not yet come to faith or maybe even heard about him, Jesus still identifies them as his sheep. Not of this fold, most likely he's talking about the Jewish nation. And Jesus says of these Gentiles, which includes us, by the way, Sitting here some 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. So if you have responded to the call to follow him, it is because he is your good shepherd. You are his sheep. He knows you. He laid down his life for you personally and powerfully. And he's now bringing you into the fold that he may have one flock under one shepherd. That's why it's so amazing if you have an opportunity to travel to other parts of the world and to to fellowship and to worship with other believers. It may look very different. Worship service may sound very different. It'll be in a much different context than sitting in a room like this in padded chairs, for example. But we all are worshiping the king, the good shepherd, the one true shepherd. It says his sheep know him and follow him. Now, I asked this question last week. How do we know who the sheep of Jesus are? Is it because your name is on the membership roll here at First Baptist Church? Is it because you have a a Christian bumper sticker on the back of your car? Is it because you regularly attend a worship service? Uh, do, Do we have some sort of secret tattoo on the inside of our left arm? Is there a sheep birthmark? No. The sheep of Jesus are those who know him and follow him. And in verse 27, when Jesus comes back to the good shepherd metaphor, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now notice, there are those who do not know him and are not his sheep. So by contrast, those who do not follow Jesus are not his sheep. Listen carefully to what Jesus says to the unbelieving Jews in verses 25 and 26 here. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. It's like we've said all through our study of John, as we've looked at some of these religious leaders of the Jewish people, he was right there. He was right there. You ever found yourself looking for something that you, that you lost? And then you, you later find it, and it was like right there in, in broad daylight, as it were. What do we say? If it's a snake, it would have bit me, right? Like the Messiah was literally right there. He was in front of them. And yet they continue on this crazy venture and missing the point completely. Why? Because they were not his sheep. They're not his sheep. He said, you're not among my sheep because you do not believe. Now, that Jesus did not tell them, hey, you're not among my sheep because you don't believe. No, what he said was the opposite of that. You do not believe because you are not my, among my sheep. <laughs> they may be Jewish, sure. They, they may be even respected leaders among the Jewish people, but they are not Jesus' sheep. They are not his. And they do not believe but remain blind and cold even in the face of compelling evidence in the miraculous works of Jesus. Those who say, you still hear it today, if only, if only I could see Jesus do some miracles, then I would believe. Seeing is believing. They're missing the reality here. These people saw, and yet they don't believe because Jesus did not count them among his sheep. It doesn't excuse their unbelief. It comes from their sinful, rebellious hearts. But it does explain why they are so blind and so deaf to his call. They're not his sheep. And then notice this, Jesus keeps his sheep secure forever. More importantly, it explains why some of us have had our sinful, rebellious hearts changed and our ears opened to hear the voice of Jesus. It's not because you're an amazing person or I'm an amazing person. No, we're not any better than an unbeliever, humanly speaking. We've been called because Jesus has called us his own. We've been made to hear his voice because he's been pleased to number us among his sheep. And once he has claimed us and called us, get this, we can never be lost. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I love the language here, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. My sheep hear my voice. This is recognizing the authoritative voice of Jesus speaking in his word, the Bible. Several years ago, when we were pastoring in South Texas, we often went across uh, the Mexican border uh, into uh, some villages along the, the Texas-Mexico border down there, did ministry. And one of the things that is strikingly obvious, uh, apart from the, the things that are really, really clear, uh, the standard of living, a, a lot of different things, is the way that people value things there. So if you, if you were to give a package of M&Ms to an average American kid, okay, and that would be an average American pastor too, we will rip the package open. A lot of times we'll like dump almost the entire thing in our mouth all at one time, right? I, I can't think of a better way to eat a package of M&Ms myself, okay? But if you give some M&Ms to a little child along the Mexican border down there, they don't do that. They hold those M&Ms in the palm of their hand like they're precious, and they'll eat them one at a time many times. And they'll cover them up with their other hand. 
And they may walk around with them for a while. Or we wouldn't do that. We would just go, oh, give me some more, right? No, they don't do that. <laughs> they protect them. They guard them. They're precious. That's kind of the picture that we see here when Jesus says, I, my sheep, I have them in my hand. And my father, they're in his hand. I and my father are one. And the sheep are secure in us. You see, our security in Christ, our security in our salvation, if we, if we look at the beautiful doctrine of the eternal security of the believer, it's not found in us or our ability to hang on. <laughs> Someone said it this way, if we could lose our salvation, we would <laughs> all day long. It does not depend upon Mike and his performance. It depends upon Jesus and his finished work and what he has done for me. Now, I realize, like many of you, I've, I've got great friends who are of a different persuasion when it comes to this subject, okay? They're the ones who would come to me and say, but Mike, what about that person who walks down the aisle of your church? Maybe they fill out that card or they, whatever, they go through all the steps and everything else. But then two months, six months, two years later, you look up and they're nowhere to be found. Well, it's one of two things, okay? Either they, they've drifted spiritually and are not where they need to be, but they were never truly saved. That's why I don't like the language of once saved, always saved. I'm not a fan of that language. I would say it this way. Once truly saved, always truly saved. Okay? So this is not an easy believism. This is not a doctrine that says, man, once you've, once you've done, you know, gone through the steps, you've prayed a prayer, then you can live however you want to, and it doesn't matter because you're secure. Now, that's not what that's saying. So he's saying here, this is, this is the security that you have in Jesus in who he is. It's based not upon our goodness, not upon our righteousness, not our ability to keep ourselves saved, as it were, keep ourselves at a particular uh, spiritual level. It's all based upon the character and nature of Christ. All based upon him. It's always during this week of Thanksgiving that I celebrate a significant milestone in my life. It was on November the 24th, 1974 at a Thanksgiving service that I committed my life to Jesus Christ as an eight-year-old kid. And I'd be lying if I stood here this morning and told you that there's never been times, uh, never been days over those nearly 50-some years now that I've, I've ever doubted my salvation. I have. Like anybody, I've like, I get to a place I'm just like, I, I just don't, like the Apostle Paul, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing them. The things I do want to do, I don't do them. I'm like, I really even... Every time, you know what I come back to? The character of God himself. The character of God himself. He who promised is faithful. He's faithful. And he says here, as the good shepherd, you hear my voice, you follow me, you're secure in me and in who I am as the good shepherd. If we could for just a moment bow our heads together this morning. I want us to think back for a moment to the familiar words of that 23rd Psalm once again. And if you haven't memorized the words of the 23rd Psalm, it's very likely that you're at least familiar with them. It's very likely you've heard them recited somewhere. You've seen them hanging on a plaque The Lord is my shepherd. It's very personal. I shall not want. Makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
restores my soul. Leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For he's with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. You may not be quite as familiar with the final words of that psalm. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a beautiful picture of our good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He loves us provides for us, feeds us, protects us. Laid down his life for us. So that we can say, not because of anything we've done or ever could do, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to take that step of faith. I'm not asking you to become a member of First Baptist Church, Van Alstine. I'm asking you to simply acknowledge in your heart of hearts that you're a sinner and you can't save yourself. So you're trusting Jesus as the one who laid down his life for you, the good shepherd. If your testimony is one of faith in Jesus, then I rejoice with you today. And I hope and pray that over these next few days especially, you will thank him for all that he is to you and for you. He's your good shepherd. He paid a debt that he didn't know so that you could live a life you don't deserve. That's Jesus, our good shepherd. Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for the amazing picture that we see here and the good shepherd. We thank you for your provision, your sacrifice, your great love for us, your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the security that is ours in Jesus. I thank you that that security is not dependent upon us, our abilities, it's based entirely upon you, your character, your nature as eternal God. You're a good, good father. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.